0: Let's do it. This is unorthodox. This is unorthodox. The universe is... <coughs> Don't laugh at my this. Sorry. I'm sorry. This... This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer. Joined, as ever, by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick.
1: It's me. I'm here.
0: Present. Tis you. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz. Day 10 of the Omer and Counting. Oh, I forgot we were in the Omer. I always know we're in the Omer because I go to shul and they mention the Omer, but we didn't mention the Omer on Saturday. I'm not going to shul as much because of stuff in the world. It's the Omer, baby. Tis the Omer. Our Jew of the Week is Israeli actress and activist No Tishby, who, in addition to bringing in treatment to America, she's the executive producer who brought the Israeli TV show In Treatment to the United States. She's also the author of a new book called Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth, which has been described, though I'm not sure by whom, as the case for Israel for fans of drunk history. <laughs> and our drummer of the week, no, and our gentile of the week <laughs> is Talking Heads drummer Chris France, which just elicited two reactions. Half of you said who are the talking heads and who's Chris France? The other half said, oh my God, they booked Chris France of talking heads? And the answer is, yes, listener, he did.
1: Third cohort is saying, how did I get here?
0: <laughs> Before we get to that, for those who don't know what the Omer is, let's say you've joined this podcast since the last Omer and you're not an Orthodox Jew or a really nerdy conservative or Reformer or other Jew. Liel, what's the Omer, baby?
2: You count the 50 days between Passover and Shavuot leading up. It's like, you know how you when you're a kid you count the days down to your birthday here we count the days to receiving the Torah and there's something really kind of amazing about it you sort of like prepare it's like 10 days it's like 20 days 40 days 46 days like until this great big festival of Shavuot where you stay up all night you eat dairy products and you celebrate receiving the Torah
1: and this is all symbolic because on Passover we left Egypt And then wander the desert for 40 years. We didn't want to wait 40 years for Shavuot. So we've we've sort of like made that nice. What is it? 49, 50 days?
2: Yeah, they brought in a management consultant. So originally they're going to do 40 (laughs) years. And then they brought in like a McKinsey person. And he's like, guys,
1: you know, mm, we can optimize this a
0: bit too much. Right. (laughs)
1: We can cut costs. No golden calf this time.
0: Bronze calf. And for those of you you, you, who may have heard that thing about dairy treats, that's right. On Shavuot, in several weeks now, it is traditional to eat dairy. There are assorted theories on why that is. But if you're looking to plug into observance, if you're looking to ration it up a little bit this year, you know, go online, find a cheesecake recipe. That's like the juiciest thing you could be doing right now. Oh, just count the Omer. It's so much fun to like every night have just like a little moment and be like, 11 days. One often does it with the children. You go in as they're drifting off to sleep and tousle their hair. And you say a prayer that's like, blessed are you, Lord, our God, for commanding us to count the Omer on this, the 17th night of the Omer. And the next night, it's like, on this, the 18th night of the Omer. And they know that when they get to 50, there's cheesecake and command. There's a
1: slice of cheesecake for them. <laughs> and they get to stay up all night. No, I like this a lot. And and what comes up every year is, you know, someone was created something that was counting the Homer. Homer Simpson. So right, it was like the a Simpsons themed yep. Omar counting. When the wire was pretty big, there was counting the Omar. Right. Because Omar coming, like that was from the wire. And so people <laughs> really like you said the nerd thing earlier. Like for some reason, I don't know, I think it's the the confluence of like numerology, the Jews, I don't know what, yeah, Jews studying books.
2: There's some mystical elements connected to
0: each day. It's really the best. You're deep into the Omer this year, aren't you, Liel? Oh, I'm every year. It's like our version of Lent. <laughs> except we don't give up anything. No. It's our version of Lent, except we're planning to pick out a, a cheesecake and ice cream at the end.
1: Well, before Easter this past weekend, I was like, Oh, I remember that Father Jim Martin, like, I wonder what he had to give. Did he tell us what he had to give up this year?
0: Zatar, like really (laughs) random spices. And
1: I was like, I hope he's doing okay in the lead up to Easter (laughs) without all those spices.
0: Speaking of of minor world holidays, Stephanie, how was your Passover?
1: Passover is good. You know, the interesting thing about working in a Jewish magazine is you get off for the Jewish holidays. So around like January 3rd, the calendar comes around with what days off we have. I will say we had one half day and one full day off for Passover. Usually you get like a little bit more. It depends how the holidays break, right? A lot of them were on, like the first Seder was on Saturday night. So we didn't have that many days off. But I did look ahead to September. And Tablet works like three days in September. It's just like sweeps. You're Like I love Shavuot break. That's always my favorite thing because it's like two days off in the middle of May. And I, I guess I say this as someone who does not traditionally observe these holidays. So they are... Actually days off and I realized my privilege because I know a lot of people have to take all those days off from work. Is that an Allison Janney line from the West Wing being like, are these holidays real? All these Jewish holidays that people have to take off. So I am sympathetic to the plight of people who have to use their paid time off their vacation days on Jewish holidays. I have the reverse problem. So,
2: here on the Upper West Side, the fun thing to note you know, Tishrei is still, still ways away. But walking around on Sunday evening, the number of people, basically, you could tell spot the Jew because everyone who was Jewish was walking around with four or five or six huge trays of pizza because God forbid we have not had carbohydrates in like four days, like whatever, eight days that, you know, Passover is like, oh my God, it is now halachically incumbent upon us to eat these two extra large pies. It was amazing to see lines like out the door in every pizza parlor. It's just beautiful.
1: I do think that next year for Passover, I think we should get into the Gabrocks debate.
0: Oh my God.
1: We never really dove into that.
0: So that's if you eat stuff that fakes, that sort of pretend leavened, like matzah balls. Can you do that? Can you can you fake out God by- Can you wet any
2: shred of matzah? And some observant Jews would say, nope, cannot. No matzah braai for them.
1: I want a full exposition on this next year because there are people who like take real, real pains to ensure that none of their matzah gets wet at all, which happens when it goes in your mouth, right? How do we deal with that?
2: And by the way, the fact that there is still not a good punk band called Gebrocht is like just just a <laughs> huge
0: oversight. The Gebrochters? Chris France should start a new band called Gebrocht.
1: Gebrocht and Roll?
0: That would be something if you had Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club and Gebrocht.
1: We could talk to Bram Presser from Yidcore. I feel like Gebrocht might be up their alley. And then we'll get also into Shotnez maybe next year also. The wool and linen prohibitions.
0: I like how you're making our podcast more and more religious as the years go on, Stephanie. Like by the time we're into shotnez, the fabrics that we can mix in our clothes, according to Torah, at that point, you're moving to B'nai Brock Well,
1: what's, what's the difference between aluminum foil saran wrap? Like, it's, it's all the same thing. We're just going deeper in.
0: It's all the same tummuted,
2: <laughs> endless debate. We're running
1: out of debates <laughs> and drama for our Facebook group. I will say that the the Passover the, the Passover, that sounds very Christian, Passover was great because it brought us a lot more autocorrect fails. I want to share some with you. This is my new favorite thing. As listeners know, we are obsessed with when your phone writes something Jewish and it spits out something that is completely not Jewish, usually very entertaining. So our listeners have been compiling them in our Facebook group, which is amazing. And so Grace Ellen Von Hoff says, I, a Dutch Jew, made a vegan version of gefilte fish this year. I didn't realize I had my Dutch uh, keyboard on when I was texting my sister-in-law about it. And it autocorrected as gefuckte fish. <laughs> <laughs> she says she's going to start a new business. I love this. My favorite thing is that all the people are like, yeah, can I, can I have the recipe, though, for your vegan gefuckte fish? Yeah. <laughs> <Like>, I want <laughs> that vegan gefuckte fish recipe. From
2: the people who brought you the impossible burger comes the gefuckte fish. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And then this comes in from Haley Schulman. She was trying to write chametz, aka leavened bread, and it kept autocorrecting. You know when something keeps autocorrecting, and you, you like try to type it again and you miss it. It kept changing to gamers. So she was like had some conversation. She's like, you know, it's not on kosher for Pesach like gamers. Like talking about <laughs> kidney oat in some text chain. And then she says gamers, not gamers. Ha But like she clearly didn't realize it autocorrected again. And she's like, no, so you could bring it with you and it wouldn't make the place unkosher, even if they won't eat it. You could bring kidney oat. Whoever she's talking to replies very normally, like doesn't acknowledge it. She's like, yeah, I guess we'll just bring it. I have some berries, too. And then Arielle says, wow, I just realized it autocorrected twice from hummates to gamers. LOL. And her interlocutor responds, intertextutor responds, I think it's an autocorrect to share with the unorthodox Facebook group. Ugh.
0: We are out there. So
1: I'm really happy. And then this is a non-Passover related one, but Ilana Wiesel said, today I wrote Rafua Shalema, which means get well. Today I wrote Rafua Shalema and it was autocorrected to refuse Selena. And like, I would never <laughs> refuse anything about Selena. I would never refuse
0: to watch Selena. We're team Ariana all the way. We're Demi Lovato. <laughs> refuse Selena. I think that's great. I think it's Ladino, actually. That's actually how they say it in Ladino. In my world, the only news is I've been tabulating the results of the Jewish Name of the Year contest, and I am here to announce that the two finalists... You
1: are the Ernst & Young, briefcase-wielding
0: accountant, Mark Oppenheimer. It is true. The, the briefcase is currently... Excuse me, while I unhandcuff the briefcase from my wrist. And let me just say, before I announce this, that it seemed fitting that the finalists would be one super old-school Yiddish name, representing the eastern bracket as it happened, like straight out of the Lower East Side. Oh, Eastern Europe. Lower Eastern Ukraine. <laughs> Lower Eastern Kiev. And one super new agey, slam together mashup of a, a Jewish American female name. And those names are <laughs> Muthel dimshits <laughs> and Trudy Hope Schlammeritz. And this is your last chance. And I would like you, and here's the thing. We've had so many votes. We actually know which has had more votes going on throughout this process. Through Facebook, through emails to us. What I need at this point, at this point, it gets a little more qualitative, a little more like what's in your kishkas. I need some emails to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com explaining in a qualitative, almost essayistic way, almost theological, why Trudy Hope Shlomowitz or Mothel Dimshitz. Maybe there's a backstory to one of them. Maybe you have an idea of who this person is. The crazier the better. Email me moppenheimer Trudy Hope Shlomowitz or Mothel Dimshitz. News and O T J news of the Jews. Uh-huh. <laughs> news of the Jews. Liel, do you have any news of the Jews for us this week? Do
2: I ever have news of the Jews? So, do you know this uh, Nordic concept of Haiga? That things have to be like very cozy and and like warm. And- I
1: think it's actually hugger.
2: I thought it was hugger. Okay, so the Danes have taken hygge uh, <laughs> to anti-Semitism, which is, of course, how you do things. So to have like a cozier, more kind of inclusive, more DIY, cutesy, Etsy type of anti-Semitism, rather than deface a synagogue, this is in Denmark, rather than deface it or write swastikas or, or something on the wall, they just very kind of cutesy-etsy, left outside the synagogue, some red paint, some baby dolls, and some anti-Semitic literature, just kind of outside of the shul. It's sort of like, first of all, it's like, make your own pogrom. Well, they're very <laughs>
0: crafty people. And I don't mean crafty the way Jews are crafty. Right. I mean crafty the way Danes are crafty. They craft things.
2: They splash the baby dolls with a red paint, which I take it as some kind of weird Passover reference. It's like uh-huh. the blood. Again, proving one more time that anti-Semites know way more about Judaism than (laughs) Pretty much any Jew.
0: The nice thing was, they also left some clogs (laughs) and some mid century modern blonde wood furniture, some herring. Some herring. It was a it was a whole smorgasbord of Danish culture. If you're going to perpetrate anti-Semitic
2: attacks, we want more of this Etsy vibe, please. Totally.
1: I will say that JTA informs us that this is likely traceable to the Nordic resistance movement, which I kind of think of it as like a Nordic track where you like add your resistance. It's actually a neo-Nazi <laughs> group, not, not like a workout trend. Their quads are very strong. These people have a history of harassing Jews on Jewish holidays. And they basically publish on their website a photo of said display, said sort of like nativity scene of all the, the bloody babies. I
0: thought you were going to say they published on their website a calendar of Jewish holidays. Like, guys, we have to harass them for, for some gadalia. Their form of harassment is saying, what's the deal with two-day yontif? One wasn't enough.
1: <laughs> no, they love two-day yontif. That's two days for trolling Jews. And And are they <laughs> counting the Omer? What do they do about fast days? At least someone's paying attention to the Jewish calendar. I'm sorry, I'm going to get
0: in trouble. Stephanie, you're totally right. Like, if these anti-Semites were for real, we're in the midst of a 50-day Omer counting. What? They can't leave something outside the synagogue in Copenhagen every day for 50 days? They have no Zitzfleisch, They have no stick to Guys,
1: it's actually worse. It was outside of a cemetery, but I actually think that it's less upsetting to Jews. Outside a synagogue is bad. Outside a cemetery Agreed. is, I feel like, one degree removed. I would like, actually, all of our Danish Jews to write in and tell us, like, actually what's going on here.
2: It's Denmark and Passover. And so they left a taunt saying, ha ha, it's Pesach, so you can't have a Danish. Ooh, I'm sorry. Oh, wow.
0: I'll be here all week. Hamid's drop. Well, from the bad to the good. Stephanie, you want to give us some signs of life in, in the geosphere?
1: So your iPhone may still never understand what Hamid's is or Rafu Ashlema, but your Duolingo app. This is news, by the way, this is news that everyone has been emailed like six times by a grandparent or an older relative. Duolingo, which is the apparently it's the world's largest language learning app. They just unveiled Yiddish first Yiddish course. And this is thanks to Mina Viswanath. She is the daughter and granddaughter of Yiddish scholars. And so she is the person who basically helped them with how to get Yiddish onto Duolingo. Of course, there is a lot of drama when you add, I guess, any language, but particularly a Jewish language, because there is secular Yiddish and then there's like religious Yiddish spoken by Hasidic people who speak it in their homes. And so it sounds like there's like a tension between like which Duolingo Yiddish are you going to get? So I think it was really, really hard, amazing undertaking. I will say that they're doing a lot of very funny promotion. And apparently, if you start the Duolingo Yiddish course you can get a free bagel at places like Katz's <laughs> Deli and, and Manny's Cafeteria what? in
0: Chicago. So you walk in, you show them the app?
1: No, it's better. You place your order in Yiddish. Oh you place your order in Yiddish. I don't quite know who's getting a bagel at Katz's Deli, but like if you go to Katz's Deli and you place your order in Yiddish, I feel like you're going to get a lot of blank stares. <laughs> but I love this idea. I want to say one more thing about the family behind this Duolingo Yiddish explosion. So basically, Mina Viswanath, as we mentioned, is the person who sort of helped Duolingo with bringing Yiddish to to the app. Her mother was on the show. Her mother is Gittel Schechter Viswanath, who edited the Comprehensive English Yiddish Dictionary. She's actually featured in our newest Jewish Encyclopedia. She helped us with these fun, like, Yiddish terms for modern words, like (laughs) locavore or, like, staycation, you know, like words that would have never existed, but she sort of helped us create them. And Gittel Schechter Viswanath is a daughter of Mordka Schechter, who is sort of like the big macher, as they say, of of Yiddishists. And so so this is like a, a Yiddish dynasty But it's getting very modern because, as we know, Mina is helping people learn Yiddish by app. And her brother, Arun, published the first translation of Harry Potter in Yiddish. So this family is like Lador Vador, bringing Yiddish to the masses in a very modern, amazing way. So, you know, I hear about the modern
2: way, but this being the the age of oversharing, everyone who's now using Duolingo. Not everyone, but a lot of people are sharing their classes on Twitter. And so you could see what the actual classes are like. Here's something that came into my Twitter inbox like literally two seconds ago. This is from the Duolingo Yiddish, ready? What are the Lithuanians celebrating today? <laughs> that, you know, forgive me for not feeling very modern here. It's like, excuse me,
0: what time is the pogrom? Are these chickens properly slaughtered? Here's the problem with turning it all over to one family, like all of the of Yiddish continuity, turning it over to the shekters. I actually have it on strong authority they don't really speak Yiddish. This is just their family (laughs) nonsense language that Mordechai started or, you know. This is just family babble. And they realized, holy shit, this was like back in the 30s or something. Yiddish is dying off in the universities. And he says, I'm going to start a program and we're going to teach it to these Ivy League kids, whatever. He's just like, I can tell them anything. They'll believe anything's Yiddish. Excuse me, is this your emu? (laughs) It's a combination of, of Elvish, Esperanto, Schechter family babble, and like... Donor talk that is now being picked up at government mule concerts by the grandchild. I mean, it's not Yiddish at all. Half of it is just Jay-Z lyric fed through Google Translate. (laughs) They're convincing tens of thousands. It's like Edward Lear. It's, you know, the owl and the pussycat. It's Runcible Spoons. They're convincing tens of thousands of people this is Yiddish. It's not. It's not Yiddish.
1: Here's the problem. It's like. If I want Duolingo to work for me, I want to know, like, how do I order a bacon cheeseburger in Yiddish? Is that possible? Is that, does the language stretch to accommodate those modern needs?
2: I'm sure it does. <laughs> Give me a double trafe.
1: Does Duolingo, can you get it on Shabbat? Like, can you open the app? I mean, I feel like we, there's a lot of like Talmudic disputation to happen here.
2: Can I just hop here in a second? It's Josh, the producer. I first learned about this when my 16-year-old was like, Dad, can we do this Duolingo thing together so we can go get free bagels places? But I pulled up the description on their website of what it actually says, and it is absolutely hysterical. First of all, they'll tell you that you'll learn to pronounce it using the Hungarian Yiddish dialect.
0: Oh, the Hungarian? (laughs) I'm out. No, it's the Satmar. They're using secular spellings, but Satmar pronunciations. They've talked about this. You'll learn
2: Yiddish grammar. And of course, you'll learn how to
3: place a perfect order for a bagel and a schmear. It right in the text. Oh, Jesus.
0: A By the
2: way, to our anti-Semitic listeners who are obsessed with Jews and think we could take over the world, we can't even agree on like which pronunciation to put on our <laughs> Yiddish app. Guys, we're fine. Don't worry about it. They, they do finish with, you'll be shepping naches. In no time,
1: which nobody says. No, they're they're like, I just want to schlep nachos free when I order them in Yiddish. Right.
0: <laughs> Do you know I learned the term Shep naches was my one of my most goyish professors in grad school, one of my most goyish Christian history professors ever. Super, super, super wasp. He was the one who said when my grandfather came to my uh, my robing for getting my PhD, he said to me, he said, "Oh, I bet your grandfather is Sheping naches today." And I thought, <laughs> what? Nobody said that ever. Ever. You said, like, grandpa is on his
2: eighth marriage. He's been shipping Nachis for a really long time. Different grandpa, but yeah.
1: So shipping Nachis is like you're very proud of something. So nachos. Right. But a lot of people say, like, oh, I have such Nachis seeing you up
0: there on the Bima. Right. People use Nachis, but nobody fucking sheps it.
1: I will say that if anyone wants to get the free bagel without the Duolingo I can tell you, I, I see the photo, the promotional photo.
0: See what I'm saying? Fake Yiddish.
1: I have to say, I am one of those sort of like stereotypical young Jews who about 10 years ago enrolled in a class at the Workman circle, like adult beginner Yiddish. And I like, I did it. I was like, I need to know the language of my forebears. And,
0: and you are fluent to this day.
1: It was really hard. I had learned German first.
0: I was about
2: to say, if the, only there was any other language that your forebear has spoken and, and like wrote an important book in
0: <laughs> for all to read. And now we're all learning the fake Yiddish promoted by the Schechter family. They might sue us, but I think it's true. I think it's Schechter family babble.
1: And everyone, if you are learning Yiddish on Duolingo, send us screenshots. Send us your Yiddish autocorrect fails. We want to know it all. Get those bagels. Shmear it up. Isn't shmear a Yiddish word?
0: So they claim. But again, I don't think it sounds too... Too perfect. American goyish like shmear. It's just... Shmageggy. Yeah, it's too shmageggy.
2: Our guest today, Noah Tishby, is an amazing Israeli actress, producer, writer, and activist. I remember when she first appeared on the scene in Ramat Aviv Gimel, which was the first ever Israeli soap opera. Can we call it that? It was. It was great. We loved her, and she's went on and done incredible things, and now she is the author of Israel. A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth. It's a personal, accessible, conversational, anti-textbook, which is just my kind of book. Have a listen to her conversation with Mark and Stephanie.
1: is exciting right now right here we are live on the zoom with noah tishby she's an israeli actress writer producer activist her latest project is decidedly on hollywood it's a book called israel a simple guide to the most misunderstood country on earth welcome noah hi thank you so much i'm so happy to be here so you've had a really really interesting career you became a major tv star in israel in your 20s a singer, a pop star. You moved to L.A. You've done a bunch more acting. I'm just telling you things about yourself now. You moved into production. We have you to thank for like bringing us the show in treatment to America, which a lot of us just like love you. I think you might be single handedly responsible for like the wave of Israeli remakes in America. (laughs) So before we get started on anything about your book, I mean, to me, you've always sort of straddled America and Israel in a really interesting way. You've lived here for a while now. You sort of have a great window into both of those things. Is that correct?
3: So I always joke that I'm 100% American, 100% Israeli. So I was born and raised in Israel. It's a very Zionist family. I moved to the States, but I didn't really move to the state because when people ask me, like, when did you move? I'm like, did I? I don't know. I legitimately feel as if I divide my life between L.A. and Tel Aviv. The whole like concept of bringing in treatment over really merged the Hollywood community with the with Israel, with the entertainment industry in Israel and created this whole market where a market did not exist before of television formats in the U.S. So to me, I've always felt like a bridge and kind of like a pipeline between these two cultures and a way to merge them together. So, yeah, I'm 100% of both.
0: So let's talk in treatment. I mean, when was the moment when you thought, wait a second, Americans would dig this too?
3: The Hollywood community at the time was very much like, oh, no, if you're not Angelina Jolie, you, you're you not going to get to produce. Like, really? And I'm like, <clears throat> So then I read about this show in an Israeli newspaper. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is such a great idea. Why did I not think about this? I mean, I've been to do right? I forgot about it. I went to Israel then a few months later for my nieces but mitzvah and everybody was talking about the show. Everybody was like, This is amazing, this is brilliant, blah like, blah well, you have to watch it if you watch it. And there was a moment when I was I'm driving in the car, I'm with my manager from Israel, Zohar Jakobson, the genius woman. And she like the tenth person that goes, Oh my god, you have to if you watch with you pool, you have to watch it. That's amazing. And I just had this like bing above my head. And I turned to her and I'm like, Oh my god, do you know the creator? And she's like, Yes. And I'm like, do you have his number? She goes, yes. I'm like, call him right now. So she calls him and she's like, um, Noah Tishby wants to talk to you. So I pick up the phone and I'm like, I want to meet you. And it's not about what you think. And I'm leaving back to LA tomorrow and I ha- we have to meet. And I hang up the phone and I'm like, turn to Zohar. And I'm like, you got to show me the show. I need a DVD of the show. I haven't seen it. Because at that particular instant, I'm like, this is a format. And I went to a meeting with the creator the next day. And I basically told him, I was like, I'm going to sell you show to HBO. And he looked at me as if I'm insane because it was so unheard of, there weren't even clause in like the contract to address the possibility of international format rights. Like it just didn't happen before. He thought it was crazy. So that was the moment. It worked out really well. We did three seasons, 145 episodes, 12 Emmys and Golden Globe nominations, a Peabody Award, and we're just shooting for a season. And it's and it created this market of Israeli television formats in the U.S. and a huge bipollination of Israel and Hollywood. entertainment community. Huge. So whereas before executives in Hollywood were like, Israel, what? Like when I first call people up and I'm like, I have a show from Israel, they're like, good for you.
1: <laughs> and now everyone's like, that's what we want.
3: Exactly. And now you basically have a show from Israel. Come on <laughs> in for a meeting.
1: By the way, we had Ayala Zer on the show a few weeks ago and she was in the original Israeli version of Entreatment. She's obviously been in a bunch of stuff. She's in Losing Alice now. We sort of asked her to describe the differences of working in Hollywood versus Israel. And she, the thing she said was like, you know, in Hollywood, everyone has their roles. In Israel, like the lighting guy will tell you what he thinks you should do about like your lines.
3: A hundred percent true. <laughs> true. You're on a photo shoot in Israel. And this is amazing, by the way, because it's, I mean, look, the creativity there is insane. You're on a photo shoot in Israel. And in the middle of the photo shoot, the hairstylist would come over and be like, stop, stop, stop. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) And turn to the photographer and be like, I don't think this light is good. Why don't we change things around? And the thing is that the photographer would listen and be like, oh, that's actually a good idea. Or... Shut up, it's a terrible idea but it's very straight up and very kind of collaborative so she couldn't be more true. she's absolutely 100% true on that.
1: My question for you was like so you became this cultural bridge like when did it become more serious right like when did Israel become this thing that you realized you had to sort of defend, explain how soon in your time in America did that sort of become your side
3: thing my, my side thing that then became my thing thing yeah it was pretty quick. It was pretty quickly after I moved to the states that I realized that people have no idea what Israel's about that was like years ago. So it was even worse at the time. I tell this story in my book about this a couple of months after I moved to the States, hanging out with a bunch of our friends and this one actress coming up to me and like asking me if my family is OK with me being modern without a hijab, like <laughs> dead straight. And I was shocked. And I, she was like well-educated and successful already and all that. So I didn't take it to mean, oh, my God, what an idiot she is. I took it to mean, oh, my God, we have a serious problem. Like if this person who's so well-versed in the world is legitimately thinking that that's the case with Israel, well, what are we doing here? So then I found myself kind of like unofficially talking to my friends, drawing like maps on like napkins at dinner parties. Like I found myself kind of like getting dragged into it. Wherever something was going on in the news, I had people calling me up and telling me like, can you explain this to us and whatever. I became kind of like the person to go to within, within our friends. But the major change happened in the events of the flotilla, the Mavi Marmara in 2011, which I also talk about in the book. So it was like 11 o'clock at night and I was sitting on my computer and like browsing Twitter, which was like new and whatever. And by then I was already like deep into, you know, my advocacy hobby of mine, right? So I knew that we have a lot of problems, but it wasn't like a thing that I was doing. And I saw the word Israel in Turkish was trending. And I'm like, this is effed. This is not good. Right, and I found out. I saw very quickly that the news about what had happened on the Flotilla became from what it was, which was a bunch of like radicals embedding themselves with a bunch of like peace activists trying to break a blockade which was put on Gaza by Israel and Egypt to stop a terrorist organization, turned into Israel just hopped on the love boat and killed a bunch of people. And I got really freaked out because I understood that what was perceived before is like, oh, we just have a bad Hasbara kind of thing. Mm-hmm is gonna turn into like a actual security threat, existential threat for the country. Because I saw how quickly news was spreading and there was like no fact checking or, or nothing. I got very concerned. I started like troll fighting with people on Twitter, which I don't do anymore and haven't for years. I met a group of people that were like-minded and you know, Jews, non-Jews, whatever. And we formed the first online advocacy and rapid response organization in the world that was dedicated to spreading truth about, about Israel. And that was when it became a massive part of my purpose in life, my passion, my identity. And it's kind of it started within as the years went by to be like, no, actually, everything I've done before is in order to do this.
0: Are there people who are mean to you about it?
3: No, not mean, not mean. And I'm also I don't care what (laughs) they say. Do you know what I mean? People are like, did you lose parts because you were so vocal about Israel? And I'm like, I don't care. And if I have, fine, F that, I don't care. I was able to very quickly, hand in hand with in treatment, transform at least the C level executive of Hollywood and the production teams and everybody around and creative team, writers, producers, executive producers to transform their mind and their point of view about Israel. And I'm just like slow and steady win the race. I'm just going to continue doing what I have to do because I think it's unbelievably important. This is like to come against the single consistent democracy in the Middle East is a betrayal of American values, Western values and insanity all around. So if I need to be the one to be out there and explain it to people because I have a better accent than like a bunch of other ambassadors and, and people that have been sent to do Hasbara in, in America in the past, fine, I'll do that. It is amazing when they send bad Hasbarists.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Will you guys define that word for our listeners?
3: Sure, that's
0: propaganda, right? I mean, that sounds loaded, but that is what it means, right?
3: Hasbara? No, uh, Hasbir is to, 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 from the word to explain. And it's kind of like the Israeli PR. It's, I think it's the uh, the diplomatic corps. I
0: thought it was used even by Israelis as like, you know, The government line. Not at all.
1: I think cynically it it can get taken like that. But I think fundamentally it's just like
3: spreading the good word about Israel.
0: My point stands, which is sometimes Israel sends people who can barely speak English to do Hasbara.
3: That is not untrue. Unfortunately. And I've had many issues with that. And I actually do point that out in the book. And I write that like the Israeli public relations sometimes throughout the history of the last, oh, I don't know, since Abba Ibn and Bibi Netanyahu even in the UN, right? Sounding like, a, you know, a, a middle-aged white man, which I love them all. I don't have a problem with them at all. But then, you know, whatever former military would be like, Israel has the right to defend itself.
1: I mean, you're much more glamorous than like what we usually get. This book is much more like accessible. I mean, it is about marketing and you understand that as someone who packages shows and gives them to people, like how much does your entertainment background help you be a better advocate?
3: I think it accidentally did. Well, not accidentally, because you bring everything you are to everything that you do. So I started this process because I deciphered a way to talk to people about Israel such that they understand specifically to liberals i I was able to after years of traveling in those circles those are my friends those are people that i hang out with and sitting with them and talking to them hearing their problems and addressing it one by one with a cunning use of facts i was able to find a way to just explain it such that they understand it so it wasn't so much about marketing to me it was just i'm just going to bring my voice so how does that how does that go
0: what are some conversations where you feel there's been a misunderstanding and you're going like, to use your cunning Jewish ways with facts?
3: <laughs> the cunning use of facts. I'm actually quoting Eddie Izzard there. I like to give him some props. <laughs> I didn't he know said that. that in one, oh, yeah. Well, he said it in, in a different context in one of his, um, I think, in Dress to Kill. Look, the bottom line is this. If you are an activist and you have an opinion about Israel, but you can't tell me the difference between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, shut up. Mm. Don't have an opinion unless you have the facts. And that was something that it got me very annoyed. And then at some point I was like, all right, well let's just break it down one by one. There are a lot of these, these issues. Like people would blanket Israel as like an apartheid state when they don't know to draw the green line and explain like the rights of Arab Israelis within the state of Israel, like all sorts of stuff. Like to say that it's a colonialist state, like Israel's is literally, it's a refugee state that was decolonized from Britain. Like what is wrong with you guys? So there's a lot of a lot of these things, a lot of these like kind of hot topics that come up. Of course, I enjoyed taking on BDS and ripping them a new asshole, like luring Roger Waters into like a Twitter war. Like, come on, please. (laughs) Um, But again, with a kind of use of facts, like the fact that BDS is sponsored by people who support terrorism is, is something that needs to be known for people on campus. Jews, non-Jews, like you need to know who's sponsoring your innocent campus organization.
0: So a lot of the problem, I will say, with a lot of my friends, they feel Bibi is a huge problem. So I have a double-barreled question. One, I want to know what you think of Bibi. And number two, I want you to explain the Israeli election to us, election number four. Coming
3: up to five.
0: In 72 seconds, coming up to five in 72 seconds or fewer.
3: Uh, Shichow, Balagan, and a clusterfuck. There we go. (laughs) See, she's good at packaging. There you go.
0: Good packaging. Balagan, (laughs) clusterfuck.
3: So uh, in terms of Israeli politics, I made sure for like years and years and years to never actually endorse a candidate, never publicly say who I support, who I vote for. I want to make sure that everybody knows I am a Zionist. I'm also pro-Palestinian. I'm pro-Israel. I'm staunch on defense. But I don't say publicly who I vote for just because I want to make sure that, especially within Israel, that the listening is very clear and objective. And it's clear for everybody that I work for the greater good of humanity, Jewish people and and the state of Israel. So that's number one. Number two, look, there's... (laughs) Do you really want you to explain the elections? Well,
0: Liel's always trying to explain it. and I never understand it somehow.
3: Listen, it's because it's, it's very complicated. First of all, bottom line, what I say about Israeli elections, these, the ones before, the ones to follow very shortly, is that here, this is making my point. Israel is so democratic, it's almost ungovernable. The system there, there are a couple of things that need to change. I believe that term limit would be the first thing that needs to change over there. Right. Because it's a young country. It kind of they kind of never got to it. The bottom line is this. The left and the right. The center is larger than the fringes. And that is something to understand. Right. So the reason that they can't form a government is because it's balanced. It's not balanced in the perfect way, but it's it's the right does not have the grip that the liberals, the progressive, the Democrats here would like to think that they have over there. On the contrary, just happened. Like the left-wing parties, Meretz and Cholavan and the Labour, they got stronger because people rallied up to kind of like save them instead of being like depressed and annoyed. It seemed like Bibi Netanyahu is not going to have a coalition without Ra'am of Mansour Abbas which he's been courting for a very a very long time, for months now, but now he's in a bit of a bind because his radicals, is specifically this particular guy, Itamal Ben-Gvil, who should not be anywhere near the government, is never going to sit in one coalition with Mansour Abbas. So there's a dead end, a deadlock over there. Actually, the other side has more of a potential, but let's see, I don't know. I just don't know if he's going to be able to to pull it off. He's a magician and probably one of the most talented politicians in the world right now. But I don't think he's going to be able to pull it off. So
1: speaking of quick explanations, there's a segment of your book pretty early on where, where it's titled, A Quick Historical Rundown of a Hand-Swapped Land. You basically start in what, like, 722 BC and explain every person who has controlled this land since then. I studied this, I did not know a lot that was in here. How did you do this research? How did you put it together? How did you decide how to sort of like play with the order? And And what is it all in service of?
3: This has always been clear to me because I would hear stuff like the BDS kind of like chants and and the, their propaganda messages that then permeated into my friends that would say stuff like Israel need to give back Palestine. And I'm like, but there was never a Palestine. <laughs> doesn't mean that there shouldn't be, but there just there hasn't been yet. Palestine is a regional, it's a geographical region. Up until the formation of the state of Israel, there was like the Arabs of Palestine, the Jews of Palestine, the Christians of Palestine, the Baha'is. It was a geographical region. We're, We're reforming a new national Palestinian identity here. Let's do it together and let's do it. But then I realized that people don't understand just the basic history. And that particular piece of land has swapped hands a lot. So it was only as a sovereign country, it was only a Jewish country as we know it today. Other than that, it was always like part of all these other kind of like empires and went from this side to that side, from this side to that. From the, I love the Mamluks because I just find that hilarious. None of the nations that have controlled the land are around, except for the Greeks and the Romans. Depends on how you kind of define the nation. Not getting into it. Whatever they want is great. But it's um, way more complicated. When you read through BDS websites, they literally say the Jews invaded Palestine and displaced 7.5 million people. And I'm like, no, well, I mean that's, that's
0: what? You know, that's obviously nonsense or very tendentious to say the least. But, you know, there are ways, I mean, when we say, well, it's a democracy, there are aspects of it that wouldn't fly in America, right? So for example, you know, you have marriage under the control of people who won't let Jews marry Christians, right? Which in America has a particular valence. Like it was only so recent that, you know, white people couldn't marry black people in certain states. And like that, that, those pieces of it are very, very different from what we
3: think of. And those are hard to explain. It's very hard to explain, but let me just explain this to you very quickly, Mark. There is no control of who marries whom. It's not actually under the law that you have to marry through the rabbinical system. That's the thing. It's actually not.
0: Right. No, you can, you can fly elsewhere.
3: No, you can get married in Israel. You get the exact same rights, the exact same thing. And for some reason, this is actually funny what you're saying right now, because it's one of those things that I fight with and argue with my Israeli friends a lot. Like, why do you get married to that system? You don't have to. And a lot of people choose not to now.
0: Well, no, but they want, I mean, the government has handed a certain control over a certain system to the rabbinate in a way that wouldn't pass here because of the constitution.
3: That's very true. And I think that Israel should do more to separate. I know if you got to that place in my book in which I talk about the rabbinate system and I'm like, I just.
0: No, I know you're not the biggest fan.
3: I'm not. And I'm, I'm not, I don't, I think not teaching your children core curriculum studies is an abomination of like, this is, it's like, it's horrific. So I do think that more of a separation of church and state need to happen in Israel's synagogue and state, but they don't have as much control as it seems. Because again, for you to say marriage is under them, it actually isn't. But that's the problem
0: that's coming. I mean, you have people who are Russian who have served in the IDF, but who aren't recognized as Jewish by the rabbinate, right?
3: I mean, you have these contradictions. Exactly. It's one of the things I'm like, why do people get married through the rabbinate system? There's no, there's no real well, but justification. but you're speaking as a,
0: as a secular Israel, right? Like, I, I know why I want a rabbi to marry me because for the reason I had a rabbi marry I me. I had
3: a rabbi marry me, but he was a reform rabbi. In Israel? Yeah. You, it just doesn't have to go through that particular system and it's not legally supposed to go under that particular system. And look, there's a push and pull. They want to close stores in Shabbat. And then there are parties who resisted and there's constant push and pull there.
0: So here's my question. LA is super Israeli. Where do you all hang out? Like, is there the one (laughs) coffee bean and tea leaf where like it's only Hebrew spoken? Because I keep meeting Israelis who live in LA.
1: After the pandemic, where should we all meet you? My house on Shabbat, really. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Can you describe a pre-pandemic scene of your Shabbat dinner?
3: Shabbats are amazing here, and holidays and everything. Again, pre-pandemic, pre and post, it's coming back up. It's coming back. It's it's great. I in a part of my process of reconnecting to you know to how freaking cool judaism is and community is and all that i started doing these shabbat dinners that became i don't want to say legendary because that's a bit too much but became really fun for our friends and jews non-jews whatever you go around the table you just create your own tradition everybody say what like a breakthrough you had last week and what are you committed to next week and it's it's a really beautiful way to pause and enjoy and create community i think one of the things i love about shabbat the most is the whole thing and that you're supposed to not talk about mundane stuff. So you just kind of like, all right, no cell phones, no this, no that. Let's chat and connect. I'm in. Yes. Great.
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm in also. We'll be there after the pandemic. I think there's something so interesting about what you're doing even before this book and why this book seems like a logical extension is because like what you did with TV, basically making Israel recognizable. I mean, there are non-Jews who watch Fauda and Shisil. Like that is a normal thing to watch now. And it's something that wouldn't have been necessarily so accessible or even possible without a lot of the work you're doing. And then to hear you talk about, you know, having all these L.A. people, Hollywood people at your Shabbat table, to me, is like part of the work that you're doing, right? Absolutely. And, and does it ever get exhausting to be like, always talking about Israel? Is the book the idea that like, you can stop talking about it, you can just give the book to people? She can just hand them a book, right? <laughs>
3: exactly. That's the reason I wrote the book, because I've been doing this work for so long. And I've been like traveling in these like liberal circles. And people are like, do you have a book that I can read? And <laughs> yes, I can give them Thomas Friedman and, and, you know, all these incredible like Benny Maurice and all these historians. But like most people don't want to. They want something easy and fun and accessible and relatable and something that can read quickly. You, you know, people that are listening right now, you want to, Book that you can give like your kids or your grandkids or your friends in high school or college and be like, just read this and you'll get it. I kept looking for that book and looking for it over and over and over again. I couldn't find it. And I'm like, at some point, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to write it then. And
1: Tablet is doing a special giveaway of your book. We're giving away a lot of copies. Um, and so our listeners can enter this contest to win a copy of Noah Tishby's new book, Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country on Earth, Noah, it is a pleasure chatting with you. We'll see you at your Shabbat dinner. Just let us know the date. We'll be there.
3: Yes, please.
1: And we won't talk about anything mundane. Great. <laughs> or Israel.
3: No, I can always talk about Israel. This is this kinda of, it's kinda of like an obsession.
1: Somebody has to do it and you are doing the work. Thank you so much for being on Unorthodox.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun
1: was the wonderful Noah Tishby. Her book, Israel, A Simple Guide to the Most Misunderstood Country, is out now. We're actually doing a special giveaway this book, so check out the show notes for information on how to enter to win a free copy. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st.
4: Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill
0: you to call or write? To the mailbox. It's interesting when you talk about anti-Jewish slurs, when you talk about Sheenie and Yid and Kike and all that stuff, you expect all sorts of mail. How dare you use those words? They traumatized my grandpa. No, that's not the mail you get. The mail you get is from etymology nerds. It traumatized my grandpa, who was an etymologist, who spent his entire (laughs) life trying to figure out what Kike meant. So we had a few versions of this folk etymology. One listener wrote with extreme confidence, "Kike is an insulting name for Jews that has an etymology, perhaps a surprising one. It comes from Yiddish and was used by upper class American Jews, primarily of German origins, to refer to newly immigrated Eastern European Jews. Keikel in Yiddish means circle. And religious Jews who were illiterate in English could not sign their names with an X because that was Christian. So they would often use a circle instead, a keikel. The upper class <laughs> Jews would thus disparage them with that word. With the last letter dropped, Kaikel became kike, and it was picked up by non-Jews and used as a derogatory way to refer to any Jew. So we got a few versions of this folk etymology. This is amazing.
1: By the way, Kaikel is so cute. That's what you call a baby Jew.
0: Right. Oh, my little Kaikala. Oh, look at this keichel. <laughs> Kaikala. Oh, look at all the kaikalah Here's the thing. I've done some pretty deep dives into the etymology, and while this is a popular folk etymology, there's no actual evidence for it. There's no actual instance of a German Jew referring to a little Eastern European immigrant man as a Keichel. Join us next week in Mark Ruins All the Fun. And here's the other thing. How would they even have known what, I mean, if Eastern European Jews were signing their names, it doesn't even scan as a theory because how would the transmission have happened? This is what the linguists say. You know, what's the situation in which an Eastern European Jew is signing a document in front of an upper-class German Jew, signs a circle and then says, look, mein Keikel? And that this happens enough that German Jews begin referring to the Eastern Europeans as Keichels. And that then the Gentiles know that that's how the German Jews refer to the Eastern European Jews. And then the German Jews stop doing it all But the Gentiles start calling them kikes. It doesn't scan. It's not true.
1: By the way, this is part of the like Ellis Island myth, right? Like, oh, they change all the names at Ellis Island. And you're like, actually, that's not true. So like all of this idea of like documents and signing and they couldn't Sean Ferguson like that, that whole thing. You're like, oh, that's probably not true.
0: Not true. I think the best thinking is they don't know where kike comes from. In any event. The consensus was that we're not reclaiming that word. Yid is already reclaimed because Jews speaking Yiddish call Jews Yids. And a few of you wrote in to say, hey, in my neighborhood, if you don't know someone's name, you just say, what's up, Reb Yid, my fellow Jew? <laughs>
1: I love that. Which is
0: short for rebellious Yid, <laughs> which is great. So we're not reclaiming Kike. Yid is already there in lots of perfectly fine context. Heeb came back with the magazine Heeb a while ago. Someone wrote in to point out that we actually have already reclaimed Jew because 100 years ago we were Hebrews. If you were answering a pollster's question, you know, are you this? What's your religion? Are you this? This is you were of the Hebrew persuasion. And that's why you had like the YMHA, the Young Men's Hebrew Association, the 92nd Street Y. So it's actually Jew that came back to replace Hebrew. So you would
1: say that Jews will replace us. us. (laughs) Hebrews. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, you basically set me up for that. We lost Ellie on that one.
0: He's gone. He's off the Zoom. Losing <laughs> interns left and right. Offending interns out of the room left and right. So look, the only solution as I can see it is we have to bring back a Cheney, which is such a deep cut. This is our big project for 2021. <laughs> People, please join us. In this whole thread, I want to thank Facebook group member Daniel Goldberg for pointing us to the all-time great Onion headline, Redskins Kike owner refuses to change team's offensive name. <laughs> which <laughs> uh the onion at its finest in its former glory before it was bought by a hedge fund. And I think that we want to end with a public service. So our first public service is we're bringing back Sheeney. That's the pro if, if we do nothing else this year besides Count the Omer. What
1: about Jaime? I like Jaime. I don't
0: like Sheeny I don't know. I'm kind of in Team Sheeny. It's so funny.
1: <laughs> Who's that actress, Allie Sheeney? Is that her name?
0: Allie Sheedy. It is now. Sheedy, Sheedy. She was at the Breakfast Club.
1: <laughs> I need etymology of Sheeny before I sign on for this. So someone bring that in for me, please, next week. <laughs>
0: Chris France is a musician and producer. He's best known as drummer of Talking Heads and later TomTom Tom Club. He also has a new memoir out, an instant classic, Remain in Love, Talking Heads, TomTom Tom Club, Tina. It came out last year. Chris France, welcome to Unorthodox.
4: Thank you very much,
0: Mark. This is a great pleasure. For me, too. The book is really, really cool. You've mentioned in some interviews that you wrote it yourself, which is hardly the rule for rock memoirists, and that also you'd read a bunch of rock memoirs. You mentioned Viv Albertine and some of the others. I love memoirs by musicians. What were some of the good ones? Let's talk about the literature of rock for a second.
4: Well there's one in particular I'd like to mention and that's a early memoir written in back in the 70s of Ian Hunter, famously lead singer of Mott the Hoople. The band was about to break up and David Bowie heard and he said, "Oh no, no, don't break up. Don't break up. I've got a song for you and I'll give you the song and and I'll produce the song." That song was called All the Young Dudes. Yeah. And it became a international hit, smash hit. And so Mott the Hoople had an opportunity to tour America. And the the opening act was an unknown band called Queen. (laughs) And he wrote a memoir of that trip, and it's called Diary of a Rock and Roll Star. And we have a mutual friend who was visiting me at the time and and suggested we get together with Ian for lunch. We had a very nice lunch. and, And at some point, My friend nudged me and said, tell him about the book you're going to write. So I said, Ian, I'm thinking about writing a rock and roll memoir. I really enjoyed yours. Do you have any advice for me? And Ian said, well, mate, the only thing I can tell you is to write in your own effing voice. (laughs) (laughs) And don't make shit up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's this saying that if you have a choice between the truth and the myth, print the myth. One of the reasons I wrote this book was because the myth surrounding Talking Heads is oftentimes kind of misinformed. My hope was that I could convey to people that Talking Heads was always more of a shared experience and not simply an idea that sprang forth from the brain of David Byrne. It was a lot more complicated and, shall we say, interesting than that. And so, so I, despite all temptations to print the myth, I... I stuck to the truth. So bust the myth for us. What's the truth that you're trying to convey in in the book? It was more of a shared experience, particularly in the early days. We all had our jobs to do in the band. You met at Rhode Island School of Design, right? The three of you did.
0: Was Jerry Harrison there also? No, Jerry was at Harvard. Okay, (laughs) So you and (laughs) Tina and David were at RISD. Jerry was at Harvard. Take us back to the beginning and how did things
4: evolve creatively? Well, David and I had formed a band called The Artistics and um, we played mostly cover songs. And one day, David and I were talking and we said, well, maybe we should try writing a song of our own. A couple days after that, David came knocking on the Tina Weymouth and I shared a painting studio and David came knocking on the door. He said, I've got the beginnings of a song. I wonder, could you give me some help with it? And we said, sure, David, come on in. Tina and I were preparing for uh, our senior year painting show, which was kind of a big deal at at the Rhode Island School of Design, but not too big to uh, work on a song. Right. And he came in and he sat down with his little beat-up acoustic guitar that had paint splatters on it, and he played I Can't Seem to Face Up to the Facts, I'm Tense and Nervous and I Can't Relax. I can't seem to face up to the facts I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax I thought, oh, this is cool. He said, yeah, it's cool. And then he played the chorus, which is like, you better run, 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 run away. And the fa-fa-fa-fa-fa bit. And I thought, oh, this is super. This is like a mashup of... Otis Redding and the Velvet Underground. And he said, well, I'd like to add some more verses, and I'd like the middle section of the song, the middle eight, to be in a foreign language, because I think that would connote some kind of psychotic break on the the part of the narrator. So I said, well, you know, Tina, her mother is French, and French was always spoken in the home, and she spent a lot of time in France. She could easily write it in French. And Tina said, yeah. And she sat down and she wrote the Sakel Adi Ce Soir La part in about, well, less than an hour. I wrote a couple more additional verses. That was our first experience writing a song together. And the song was called Psycho Killer. And it was a song that when we played it with the artistics, people really took notice. They liked the other stuff we were playing, but when we got to Psycho Killer, by the way, Tina was not in the band at that point. She was my girlfriend, and I was trying to get her to be in the band, but so far she had refused, probably wisely. But anyway, when we played Psycho Killer, people really took notice, and and they dug it, and so then we thought, well, maybe we should write more songs together. And the second song we wrote together was called Warning Sign, and I wrote all the lyrics for that one. And David composed the music to go along with
0: it. So you were you were already a drummer. Tina was musical. She played guitar. She played flute. She pretty quickly learned to play bass wonderfully. David Byrne can barely sing. Now, obviously, he has a kind of genius on stage. I mean, talk heads wouldn't have been talk heads without
4: him. But what was it he was bringing to the table in those early days? <laughs> well, the same thing he brings to the table now. He is a star performer. When he gets on stage, you can't take your eyes off of David Byrne because he will literally stop at nothing to get your attention. And I realized that very early on from playing with him. You know, he had something very different from, say... uh John Lennon or Mick Jagger or Roger Daltrey of The Who. It was a different type of thing completely. It was this kind of angsty, on the verge of a nervous breakdown kind of performance. Yeah, it was a kind of anxiety charisma.
0: I was re-watching Jonathan Demme's concert movie that he made of you guys, Stop Making Sense. And I was thinking about the aesthetic, right, of it all. And that was cut together from several shows you did in Los Angeles. In one of the portions they show, I think you guys are doing Girlfriend is Better, when David Byrne comes out in the famous suit, the sort of big, enormous, oversized, boxy suit. I was looking at you, you're sitting behind the drums in like an Izod polo shirt. I've always tried to figure (laughs) out, you know, sometimes you guys are called new wave. Sometimes you guys are called punk. And yet you look nothing like and sound nothing like the Ramones or the Sex Pistols or Patti Smith. And I've always this is a question I've always brought to my friends who are more versed in rock history than I. What exactly did you all have in common other than the fact that you played at CBGB's and and other downtown New York clubs? I mean, you were looking like the ultimate square behind that drum set. And yet you guys were grouped historically with people who were like piercing their noses with safety pins and spitting on their fans.
4: So what was the unified spirit? It really was CBGB's. We were very fortunate that when we moved from Providence, Rhode Island— to New York City. And the first thing I did was visit a friend of mine who lives on Bond Street, Caddy corner across the Bowery from CBGB's. And the first day I was there in New York, he said, Chris, I know you're interested in starting a band. There's something going on over at that place, CBGB's. You should ah. check it out. This was the fall of 1974. And I went and the first band I saw there was the Ramones. Wow. They were just getting started. And the- they would actually stop and have arguments on stage in the middle of their songs. Like Dee Dee would say, no, Johnny, I don't want to play. I don't want to go down to the basement. <laughs> I want to play. I don't want to walk around with you. So I thought, these guys are amazing. And they got better and better. They eventually stopped arguing in the middle of songs. The second band I saw was Patti Smith Group. Before it was the Patti Smith Group, even, it, it was just Patti Smith and Lenny K. the third band I saw there was Television. The fourth band I saw the, the next weekend was an early version of Blondie called The Angel and the Snake. I think Debbie Harry was the angel and Chris Stein was the snake. I actually loved them so much that I screwed up my courage and David was standing behind me. I walked up to Debbie Harry and I said, look, David Byrne and I are starting a band together. Would you be interested in singing with us? Because she was so good. right? She was clearly going to be a star. Debbie said very sweetly, well, I've already got a band, but I'd love it if you bought me a drink. <laughs> and so I bought her a drink and we became friends. And we still are friends. But so I saw those four bands, each one of them really interesting, and each one completely different from the other. So, to answer your question, what the bands that were called punk and then later on new wave didn't necessarily sound anything like the other punk and new wave bands. Although in England, it became, there became a sort of sameness.
0: No, I mean, in America, you would hear Blondie referred to as punk. You'd hear the Go-Go's referred to as punk. Yeah. In England, you had to be really, you had to be really angry and vicious to be called punk. So it's it just... It's interesting. It was really about a creative scene. It was about a scene in New York that you were kind of all feeding off each other. So you guys, you know, you pulled together the Talking Heads, the four of you, and had this extraordinary run. And then while you were in the Talking Heads, you and Tina Weymouth, at what point did she become your wife in this whole process?
4: When did you guys get married? We became engaged the same day we signed our record deal with Sire Records, which was in November of 76, and we were married in June of 77. It was a very exciting year,
0: touring with the Ramones, getting married, 77 big I turned 3, big year for a lot of us. <laughs> and then at some point you guys started your side project because Tom Tom Club started while Talking Heads was still going on. So what was the thinking of the side project? Why did you and Tina decide to do your own band within a band that then, of course, outlived and had bigger hit singles than the original band?
4: TomTom Club did very well for us, particularly the first album, which surprised a lot of people. And how it came about was our lead singer, David, had announced, not to us, but to our manager, that he was going to do a solo album. And his solo project, he said he didn't know how long it was going to take and basically just put the band on hold. So then Jerry Harrison said, well, if David's going to do a solo project, then I'm going to do a solo project. So then Tina and I were looking at each other like, what are we going to do while these guys are doing their solo projects? And our our accountant said, you better do something because... You've only got $2,000 in the bank between you. And this was right after the big Remain in Light tour of the world with the expanded lineup. And the reason we didn't have any money in the bank is the tour didn't make any money. It was an historic tour and sold out everywhere we went. But because of airplane flights and hotels and insurance and paying people, at the end of the day, we and the talking heads, the actual members of the band, got nothing. It's crazy, <laughs> it's crazy. So our manager, a guy named Gary Kerfurst. Gary had a friend in Chris Blackwell, the owner of Island Records, and he told Chris the situation. And Chris Blackwell said, listen, I understand the value of a good rhythm section. Have Chris and (laughs) Tina come down and record a single. And if I like the single, then they can do a whole album. And we said, great. That's great because uh, we don't even have to think about a whole album at this point in time. We can just think about a single. We did that. We went down and we recorded a song called Wordy Rapping Hood. Yeah.
3: Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace, words to make the fighting cease, words to...
4: we had a rough mix of it after a few days. We called Chris Blackwell into the studio and I played it for him. I could see this big smile on it. When it was over, he said, Can you play that again? And so we played it again. And he said, Well, I love this. I'm going to release it in the the UK, Europe, and Latin America. Meanwhile, I want you to get to work on the rest of the album. So that's how that happened.
0: And, and in some ways, Tom Tom Club is, be- I mean, the sound of Tom Tom Club conjures for me a kind of like early 80s, new wave, I want to say geek culture, early video game. I mean, when I hear Genius of Love, there's something about it that takes me back to a very specific time and place. My, you, of course, you weren't a child. You were a grown-up making this video. But for me as a child, it captures a certain slice of early 80s culture that probably had nothing to do with what you had in mind.
4: Well, we did have a Pac-Man in the recreation room of the studio. See,
0: yes, it's like it's like the best video <laughs> game music you
4: ever you ever heard. Our motivation was to make a record that our friends at the Mud Club and Ateria and Paradise Garage, these New York nightclubs, right. a record that would get played by the DJs and our friends would say, oh, wow, have you heard this new one that Chris and Tina did? So that was our motivation, and, and it really worked. The song was a hit.
0: And they were serious dance music. They You could dance to them in a way that Talking Heads was not really necessarily dance music. You end up being really influential in a couple different spheres. Now, you one of the reasons I want to sort of take this back to the book, one of the reasons you said you could do the book yourself was, of course, because you'd actually had a proper education, along with, you know, former Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and some others, you were an alumnus of the highly elite Shakespeare. Shadyside Academy in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Among other things, this is a great memoir, not only of life on the road, of touring, but also of your early life, of sort of growing up in Western Pennsylvania and being a crossing guard for younger kids and being a high schooler and a teenager and listening to novelty songs in the late 60s and early 70s. It captures a lot of Americana. There's a paragraph I'd love for you to read on page 26, which spoke to me for reasons that I think will become obvious in just a second.
4: I made some great friends at Shadyside Academy Fritz Shiring was an excellent guitarist and a fun guy who drove a Boss Red GTO. Dan Arnheim was a cheeky yet brilliant writer and actor. And Bill Oppenheimer from Mobile, Alabama, regaled us with stories from the Deep South. All right. So you
0: remember all of these people, including my Uncle Bill Oppenheimer, my dad's little brother. So I have to ask, what was Uncle Bill like back then? Do you remember him well?
4: Yes, I remember him very well. I grew up in Kentucky, which is not nearly as Deep South geographically as Alabama, but we understood each other and uh, the pros and cons of being from the Deep South. We would talk about things like duck hunting. Uh Uh-huh, yes.
0: But, you know, we always give our Gentile of the week an opportunity to ask a question, a burning question about Judaism to a resident expert such as myself. Do you have any for us, Episcopalian Chris France?
4: Yes. My question is about keeping kosher. Like any good musician, I I have Jewish friends, but I've never been in a kosher home. I hear there's like, in some cases, there's even two kitchens, definitely two sets of dining ware and silverware and whatnot but what all else is there in keeping kosher i mean does it go to makeup and hair products and things like that or or what there's often a gentile slave in the basement
0: whom we <laughs> keep down there we bring him up to he's often a presbyterian we bring him up to scrub pots and pans during <laughs> passover That's a great question, and I take it very seriously. The first thing to say is, yes, if you keep strictly kosher, you wouldn't necessarily have two kitchens. You might have two sinks. If you're building housing for Orthodox Jews, you would put in two sinks right next to each other, side by side. Your house may have two. A lot of nice kitchens have a double sink, right? You basically want to keep meat and dairy separate, and it's based on a biblical passage that you will not cook the calf in its mother's milk, which a lot of us interpret to be a kind of respect for the animal, that if you're going to cook the animal, don't cook it in the milk that would have nursed it, right? So you want to keep meat and dairy separate. So you would have often separate sinks so that if you have a meat meal, you wash the dishes in that sink. If you have a dairy meal, you wash the dishes in that sink. And you uh, would have two sets of dishes and two sets of, of silverware. And then for Passover, you might have a whole other set because on Passover, you don't want to use when you're not eating leavened bread, you don't want to use any dishes that have had you know leavened products on them. So there are, will often be like three sets of or even four sets of Dishes and two sinks. But that's kind of it. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that if you're trying to keep kosher, you wouldn't want any hair products that would have pork or shellfish in them because you don't eat any pork or shellfish. But I'm not aware of any hair products that do have pork or shellfish in them. So that would be new terrain for me. But actually, there is discussion among the Orthodox rabbis about do your pets, can you have non kosher stuff in your house? So can you feed your pets dog food? that might have pork product in it. And I think generally the answer is yes, that it's not about the purity of the household. It's really about the purity of what you take into your body. So look, I've just given you what I think is my best answer. Our listeners will certainly call in or email us and and they will refine my answer even more. But does that suffice? Separate sinks, separate dishes? Thank you very much, Mark. I, I have a much better understanding now. Wonderful. The important thing is when you come and maybe you'll come visit us sometime the next time Uncle Bill is up here and we'll have you over. The important thing is Jews do enjoy liquor almost all of which is kosher. So a nice <laughs> bottle of scotch is an appropriate gift for a Jewish household.
4: Excellent.
0: What's the next project? What are you working on now?
4: We're about to release for Record Store Day a TomTom Tom Club album that was never available on vinyl. We made an album with Tom Tom Club in the year 2000 called The Good, the Bad and the Funky, which somehow or another, a lot of people didn't notice that we had released it. So this is nice. It's available on beautiful colored vinyl with the original cover, but big. And I'm working. I'm, I just bought a bunch of art supplies. I'm going to do a book, which will be illustrated. By me, I have two beagles that I adore, and Tina and I take them with us to Europe when we travel to Europe. And Poppy, the older dog, has crossed the Atlantic 24 times. So she's a seasoned traveler, and I'm going to write a book about this, My Travels with Poppy and Kiki. And the people that we meet in our travels, also. Well, this is terrific.
0: The book is Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, Tina. It came out last year, but still available everywhere you find fine books. Chris France, drummer, producer, illustrator, Beagle owner, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week.
4: <laughs> oh, it's a great pleasure, Mark. Thank you.
0: Mazel Tovs, Leal. do you have a mazel tov this week? Oh, do I have a mazel
2: tov this week? So this week, saw the beginning of my beloved baseball season, for which I live and breathe and wait with bated breath. And for months and months and months and months, producer Josh Cross spent time telling me this year is going to be different for the Mets. They were bought by Steve Cohen, don't you know? They now have money, don't you know? They'll be good this year, don't you know? First freaking game of the season. Jacob DeGrom walks out, looking great. After 77 perfect pitches, for some reason, is removed, Mets collapse in the eighth, nothing changes. They are still a catastrophic disaster of a team. And I love them for it. And I cannot wait for a season's worth of
0: heartbreak, failure, and disappointment. Let's go, Mets. So just a comment on sports fandom. And I used to be a huge sports fan. I still enjoy watching sports with my daughter, Rebecca. It's, it's a nice social bonding thing, but you know, I'm not gonna sit down and watch a game by myself. I'm reminded, I was doing all this research on Philip Roth recently for a piece I was writing. And his friend, Benjamin Taylor, wrote a memoir of their friendship that came out last year. Really nice book. And one of the great lines is, he once asked Philip Roth, what do you think it is with the Jews? Like what the Nobel Prize is, the inventions, the theory of relativity, the success, the atom bomb. How do we do it? And Roth said, he said, well, Ben, we are the people who millennium after millennium, century after century, decade after decade, year after year, night after night, went to bed sober. That was his theory. Just like, don't be alcoholics. It's amazing what you can do. I sometimes feel, and I know there are people who are very triggered by this because they want to think that Jews drink as much as anyone else. And in fact, there are some theories that the idea that Jews don't drink was an old anti-Semitic canard. Like you can't trust them because they don't drink alcohol. Anyway, sometimes I feel like any productivity I have in this world is because I don't lose like three hours a night to watching sports. And I just want to say, I'm in awe of people who can do it. Can I tell you, I do both. I'm a pretty productive fellow. I spend about three
2: hours a night both drinking and watching sports at the same time. It's great. And then you start your reading and writing. I That's know. Right. I'm just saying, I don't <laughs> have it in me. By the time you finish the game, you are so full of hate and rage and resentment towards the world. You just have so much energy to invest back in the universe.
1: So you would call that self-care? Yes. <laughs> oh, I have a mazel tov to one of my favorite Little Babies, Baby Sam Rudnick. Current Baby Sam, future Sammy, maybe. He turned six months. He's my best friend Irene's little Baby. And her husband Ben, too.
0: To me, his little shmooly.
1: Little shmooly Rudnick. I love him so much. I'm going to meet him soon, hopefully.
0: My Mazel Tov, keeping with the kitty vibe. Two of them. Two friends and schoolmates have had babies recently. Emily Rock and Brett Kupfer had baby Jonah. And our friends Sam Purdy and Emma Sokolov-Rubin and daughter Miriam Purdy had a son. Asher Purdy.
1: Asher, Jonah, we're getting, like, Sam, like, we're getting a good sense of what, what the kids are being named this year.
0: Call me when we get to Yechezker. Rachmiel. Guys, I know two baby Rachmiels, one of whom is known as Rocky. So there we go. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Which would you prefer make a comeback, Sheeny or Jaime? Call us, 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter, bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. If you want us to come to you live when we start coming to you live again, which will be pretty soon. Email producer Josh Cross, Josh Cross with a K, Cross at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash shirt for swag. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter or join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman-Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scarambuccia. Our tablet fellow is Ellie Blyer. Artwork by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Aaron Katz oversees our Ganiza And rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Emily Barton of Tefereth Israel Synagogue in Des Moines, Iowa. We come to you again from the scattered locations of tablet studios. Shalom, friends.